But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now remember, chapters and verses are added in much later. So chapter 10 ends with that. And immediately, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the next phrase. Now, faith. So I'm going to take a second and explain what we're talking about here. This word here, faith, means it comes from the root of convinced, um, persuaded, reach the conclusion. It is, it is a word of trust. It, it does not imply anything blind. Um, the, the faith that Christians are called to is not a blind faith. Yes, there are moments in our life when we have to walk by faith, not sight. We have sight. Sometimes things don't make sense to us, but God calls us anyway. We're going to talk about the fact that this whole lineup of who we're looking at today walked by faith, not sight. That doesn't mean they had no sight. It doesn't mean they had no understanding. It means there were aspects of what God called them to that they didn't get to see until much, much later or not until they entered eternity. So that is an idea that we're looking at. It is not an unreasonable faith. So I often use the example um, that I've stolen from William Lane Craig of a man running down off a mountain to escape a storm that's going to kill him. And he comes to a fork and he knows that one path leads him to the top of the mountain and one leads him all the way down the mountain. And he has to choose one, so he picks one. Um, At that moment, he has put his absolute trust in that path to save him. But that's blind faith. He has no reason to choose left over right or right over left. He just has to choose one, so he chooses one. That is not what we as Christians are called to, or at least extremely rarely, and not for salvation. We come to that path, we come to that fork, and there's a sign that says down, points to the left. So we go down because that's the reasonable thing to do, the rational thing to do is to follow the one who seems to know. Or even better, as he says, you come down and just as you get to the fork, the forest ranger comes out of the woods screaming at the top of his lungs, everybody off the mountain, and he turns left. Probably following him as a rational thing to do, right? That is exactly the same faith. You are still putting your faith in that path to save you, just like the person who was blind would be doing. But now it's a reasonable faith, not a blind faith. And the writer of Hebrews is now about, we're about to enter a courtroom drama in Hebrews chapter 11. And this courtroom drama, the writer of Hebrews is going to place one witness after another in front of us to show that our faith is reasonable and it is reasonable to have faith even when you don't have the entire picture. That it's okay to have faith even when you don't have the fullness. It is not, as Mark Twain said, faith is not um, believing what you know ain't so. That was Mark Twain's cynical and perverse definition of faith. That is not the truth. To have faith is merely to trust in something or someone, to place your faith in them. It can be reasonable. It can be unreasonable. It can be sighted. It can be blind. It can be fully understood or not at all understood. Some people, when they get on an airplane, they understand how and why airplanes fly. Most of us have no clue, but it's the same faith when we sit down and buckle up, right? And so that faith can be known, it can be unknown, and yet it is still the same trust. Faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The things that we don't know, we can still believe. We can't know with 100% certain, well, one, anything as humans. We can't know with 100% certainty really anything as humans. But we can know past a reasonable doubt, this is the right way to go. This is the way we should go. We are convinced, persuaded. So in this courtroom drama that we're about to experience, in judgment, someone stands before God in judgment, 
And the question is asked of the non-believer, why don't you believe? And their answer is something like, you didn't show me enough. You didn't show me enough evidence. I didn't have enough proof. I didn't get to see the whole thing played out. I disagree with how you do things. I think you're wrong. That's the drama. You didn't give me enough. And what God is going to do is call one witness after another in Hebrews chapter 11 to show that that is not the truth. That's what's going to happen maybe someday in judgment. Um, I found an example. Uh, this is a, a rather famous video. Whether you, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but um, share this. If you got that video, if you could play that for us. And you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him or, or it? I will basically, that is the odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in? No, on that? but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were, they didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. There you go. So the courtroom drama, when Stephen Fry is set before Almighty God, and God says, why didn't you believe? His response is going to be to go on the attack. Um, how dare you? You did it in ways that I don't agree with. You handled things in ways that I have judged, and I have found you wanting now, what God will do, I presume, apparently from Hebrews 11, is God will begin to call witnesses. Maybe you know some of them. Maybe you know children who have had bone cancer and who held on to their faith in the midst of that. Maybe you know parents whose children have died of cancer and they're going to be called, sorry, I just <laughs> caught a scene of Doug there, um, who faced this, called to sit on the stand and say, did you have faith? Did you still believe? Did you understand why God allowed your child to have bone cancer? No, sir, I have no clue. And to be honest, I'm a little frustrated about it. Did you continue to believe in the God who revealed himself to you? Yes, sir, I did. Good. Next witness. And God's going to do this with person after person after person after person. Did you experience this pain? Were you abused? Did you face this trauma? Did you? Yes, sir, I did. Do you understand it? No, I do not. Did you hold to your faith? Yes, I did. Next witness. We're going to look in Hebrews 11, the answer, the series of witnesses that are going to be called one after another to answer the question, but you didn't give me enough. You didn't show me enough evidence. You didn't give me enough proof. And God is going to, and, and it's not possible for someone to believe in you without more proof, without more, without knowing the whole story. It's not possible. And God's going to say, it's not possible. Okay. I call to the stand Abel. Abel, did you understand how to sacrifice? Really not, no, sir. Had, you, had I written any laws yet about what sacrifices were supposed to be like? No, sir, not, I mean, no. Did you get the consequences of what an almighty God, how deep was your theology? Had you taken many seminary classes, Abel? 
No, I don't know what you're talking about. But you offered a sacrifice from, from the depths of your heart. Yes, I did. Without a good understanding of basic theology, you still did that? Yes, yes, sir, I did. Good. Witness dismissed. Next. And that's what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 11. One after another. By the way, notice, this is one of my favorite things um, that the new atheist movement loves to do, that, that kind of Stephen Fry type of thing. First of all, I love the, the arrogance of somebody trained to be an actor-comedian, to be able to, to speak so eloquently on the philosophy of the problem of evil. Um, but, especially someone who understands the problem of evil well in his own life. But the, this is a, the, the idea of um, us, us confronting God back. Understand that either God is God or he isn't. If God is God, then God is going to have a just, right, good argument, a defense of everything that he's ever done. That's what it means to be God. Is that everything you do is right? Whether it's bone cancer in children or whatever other horrible thing that we face. And so if, he's, if you're going to make him God and you're going to make him answerable for causing bone cancer, then you're also going to have to understand that he probably knows exactly what he's doing when he allows that kind of thing and human suffering. You don't get it both ways. You don't get to have him as God responsible for that and yet not God in that he doesn't know what he's doing. Do you see the problem there? That's an issue. When you wrestle with that, if you have to wrestle with that, we can talk more about that. Someday I'll do another whole sermon I've done in the past on um, the problem of suffering. Um, it's a tough one, no doubt about it. But how do we endure that? How do we engage with that? Let me, let me keep reading. Verse 2, For it is the people of old who received their commendation by that faith. For it is the people, it, by it, excuse me, the people of old received their commendation. It wasn't, it wasn't from their righteousness. It wasn't from their goodness. The, these people who we look back and we kind of honor through Scripture, we don't honor them because they were so awesome. Because they were fallen, broken, messed up people just like the rest of us. Um, they, were, they, were, they did not have it all together. It wasn't their good behavior that impressed God that gets them mentioned here in Hebrews 11. Believe me, some of them, they don't have any good behavior recorded in the Bible, and yet they're still mentioned. But think about Abraham. I mean, uh, Adam disobeys the one where the poor boy had one job, one thing he's not supposed to do, and he did it. Cain murdered somebody. Noah was a drunk, or at least got drunk. Um, Abraham was a liar and really kind of an adulterer. Isaac was a liar. Jacob was such a weasel that there's very little uh, positive about the man. Jacob's children were jealous, strategic, resentful, conniving slavers for the most part. Moses killed a man in cold blood and then ran away from the trouble that created and on and on. And we're not even starting with Samson, Jephthah, David. I mean, these guys were massive mess-ups. It was not the conviction of their right living that gets them mentioned, it is their faith. It is their decision to be convinced that Almighty God knows what He's doing and they can trust in Him even when they don't experience it firsthand, even when they don't have the complete story. Righteousness is not going to lead to commendation from God, not by us. But faith is as close as we can get. We'll hear more about that in the next chapters. For by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, How's that for a good scientific explanation, by the way? First there was nothing, and then there was something. It was not visible, and then suddenly something visible came from that. One of my, one of my favorite um, kind of memes is, the, uh, is the, the, the basic foundation of atheist belief is that first there was nothing, and then it exploded. 
chapter, verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So Abel called to the stand. He was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And he rewards those who seek him. There you go. Faith. I believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek them. Enoch is a strange character in the Bible. He's just as strange as Melchizedek or more if you've been for those. It says in Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God and he was not. That's what it says. For God took him. Build your theology on that. I don't know what to do with it. But the truth is he was there and then he wasn't. God took him. And apparently that was a response to his faith. Verse 7, by faith Noah... By the way, I can't go into detail on all these stories. You're going to have to go back and rewatch your Veggie Tales in order to know how these stories actually play out. Although they don't, they don't include the drunken thing in the Veggie Tales part. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, you are called to the stand. Noah, did you understand the consequences of what you were doing when I told you to build an ark? No, sir, I wasn't even sure what an ark was. But you built it, yes. Did you understand that you were condemning the race of mankind, essentially, by, by building that ark, that that was my plan, was to save you and no one else? I don't, I don't think I got that, no, sir. Okay, well, did you, did you understand that you were the precursor of, the, of one of the precursors of the Christ, one who's going to save people through my path, a narrow path that few people were going to survive through? No, no, now that you mention that, that's a good point. I, that's... That's amazing. That literally the apostle Peter someday was going to reference you in connection to Christ. Did he do that? That's amazing. I need to ask him about that. I mean, this is a, no, I had no idea what I was getting into. But you still built an ark? Yes, sir. By the way, some of you are waiting for me to mention that it hadn't rained. Um, that's actually not in the Bible. Um, it's, it, I, taught, I was taught that too and preached it for years before someone said, you might go look for that. It's, it's not there. Um, it does mention in in, in the first chapters of, of Genesis that it had not rained yet, but people just kind of, so sorry. And that's like one of those cool things that you're like, it hadn't rained before Noah. Like, and, now, and now many of you are going to go look, which I, go look. See if you, can find, if you find it, I want to know because I, I like that. Um, I like the idea. But here, here you go. He just didn't know. He didn't know what he was getting into, and yet he built an ark. Okay, witness dismissed. I call Abraham to the stand. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And, when he, he, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's how God called Abram. Hey, Abram. Yes, sir. I need you to leave. Okay. Just go. I'll tell you when to stop. Okay. Abraham, did you know where you were going when God called you? I had the foggiest clue. Did you know you were going to live out the rest of your life as a nomad? No, I don't think I knew that part. Did you know of all the things that were going to be happening over time? Did you understand that when God did this weird little ceremony where he did this covenant with you, did you get what was going on? I knew, I knew there was something about having lots and lots of kids. I understood that part. Okay, good. Did you have lots and lots of kids? No. How many kids did you have? I mean, one according to the promise. I had a couple. I had a few. But one according to the promise that God gave me. Okay. How old were you at that point? A hundred. You waited quite a while for that, didn't you, Abraham? Yeah, yes, yes, I did. And uh, did God ever ask you to 
I don't know, kill that child? Well, yes. And, and were you going to? Yes. So you only had one, one hope for the promise that God gave you through this one kid, and yet you were willing to sacrifice that kid? Did you understand the game God was playing at there? I hadn't the foggiest clue. Did you understand that you were going to start a whole nation? I mean, when you died, you had two grandkids. That's as far as this all the stars of the heavens children had gone was two grandkids. Some of you in the room have more grandkids than that. And yet Abraham believed that he was going to be the father of a whole nation and he went, went to his grave believing that? Yes, yes, I, I did believe that. I went to my grave believing that. And you had no real good evidence for that? Well, I mean, God told me it would happen. And I had, had a kid when I was 100 and my wife was 90. I mean, that's pretty good evidence right there. But for the whole thing? No, I did not know the whole thing. Okay. So you somehow held fast by faith, he went to live in a land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. How's that for an understatement? 90. She was 90. Slightly past the age of childbearing for most people, huh? Since she was considered him faithful who had promised, therefore one man and him as good as dead. That's a kind of a joke. He was 100 years old. He's as good as dead, and yet he impregnates his wife. We're both descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. He lived in tents waiting on a city. Verse 13, listen to this. This is the interpretation key. These all died in faith, not having received the very things promised to them. Did Abraham get to receive his myriads of children before he died? No. Abraham, did you get to see all that? No. But you died in faith? I did. I believe God would provide. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Could spend a whole sermon series teaching about seeking a homeland. Something better, something greater, something different do we believe if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return, which Abraham, by the way, did not. It's interpretation key. Jacob and Esau may have been 15 when Abraham died. That's as far as he got in that promise. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Verse 16, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was untested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises that was the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. The writer of Hebrews lets us know, this is not clear in Genesis, that, that Abraham believed his, he was going to sacrifice his son and that God was going to raise him from the dead because God had promised it was through Isaac that, that, that everything would happen. So I guess I will kill him, I will slay him, I will sacrifice him, and God will give him back to me. But in the end, God didn't, he stopped him before he could kill him. Nope, don't do it. I've offered a ram in his place. God says, now I know, but I think it's more than just God knowing. I think God already knew. God, I know, Abraham knows. And by the way, your son knows. He wasn't a child. He was an adult at the time this happened. We've seen that in the picture books. That's wrong. He was an adult when this happened. Guess what? Isaac knows. You love God more than him. You love God more than the promise itself. Abraham trusts in the character of God. God is a promise keeper. He makes promises and he holds to them. That's who he is. Abraham believed that, so he was willing to go through with this. <laughs> Did you get to see it? 
No. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. These are all things in the future. Literally, when you're giving instruction about your bones, you know you're not going to get to see the fulfillment of this thing. When I die, and that's what the Jews do, they put the body in a box until the, until the body corrodes and, and eventually evaporates and decays to nothing but bones, and then they take the bones and they put them in a small box. And, and, and Joseph said, when, you, when it comes time for you to leave Egypt to go back to the promised land that has been promised to us, take my bones with you. It was centuries before that happened. But Joseph believed it would happen. He was convinced that the God of promise would fulfill his promises. And he did. That's what it means. Joseph, you may step down from the witness stand. Did you have all the evidence? No, sir. Did you understand like, how long this was going to take and what all this was going to mean? No, sir, I did not. But you held fast with that little evidence? Yes, sir, I did. Okay, you may step down. All of these trusted in God about their own futures. 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. I always think that's funny. Like, it's compared to all the other parents, right? You look at your kids and you're like, yeah. <laughs> they all look like Phil Collins when they're... Yeah, so. um, by faith, Moses... When he was, they weren't afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he, grew, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses, like so many of these others, chose discomfort, chose mistreatment, chose suffering. Can you imagine if you would take someone who suffers... And you were to travel into the future, travel all the way to heaven and, and bring back the message from God. Here's why you suffer. You have this because of this and this. This is how God is going to use this to play out positive things in people's lives. Maybe to capture people's hearts for all eternity. If we knew, I think probably many of us, especially believers, would say, well, if that's what it takes, then I guess I'll go there. We're going to get to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate expression of this because Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into, unlike most of these people. But one witness after another, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What a brilliant and yet odd little statement here. Moses, here is Moses we presume, went to his death without understanding who Jesus Christ was. I mean, it's not, like, it's not like he went to VBS and, and, and got his little Gideon's Bible and prayed and asked Jesus into his heart at some point. That, that, all, that kind of stuff happens way later. Moses was going on the faith that, that God would rescue his people in a way beyond even just rescuing them from the Egyptians. <coughs> but would, would, would rescue them fully, finally. That's, that's the most that Moses probably could have understood. And I mean, God and Moses had some conversations we don't know about, so maybe he had a clearer understanding, but with so little understanding, with maybe not even knowing that what he was doing was sharing in the reproach of Christ. He shared in the reproach of Christ. Moses, how, how much of this do you understand what's going on? I was clueless pretty much all the time. 
God would call me here and tell me to say this, and I would do it having no idea what was going to happen. But I trusted. I went and stood before Pharaoh. I mean, can you imagine if God called you to go stand before the president and say, by the way, the, that, the whole fountain out there, all the water out there before the Washington Monument, I just want you to put your hand in it and we'll turn it to blood. So why don't you call together the president and all of Congress and stand out there and then lay your hand in that. I'll turn it to blood. You're risking looking kind of dumb, aren't you? If you touch it and it doesn't do that. And yet people, person after person, we see in Scripture, risk on God's behalf. God calls them to do something and they do it. The reproach of Christ. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. These are all examples of people who, in the immediacy, were called to make a tough decision. Hey, Joshua, I'm going to get you to, uh, here's your strategy for taking Jericho. I want you to walk around the city. Okay, good. I I mean, reconnoitering is always a good thing. You want some intelligence. I want you to walk around the next day again. Okay. I mean, yeah, I can see why we might want to do that. And then the next day again. How many days are you going to ask me to do this, God? Well, six. And the seventh day, I'm going to have you walk around the city seven times. How's this for a battle strategy? God, I'm going to look like a total moron. Yep. So that's what I'm calling you to do. Go do that. In that moment, Joshua had to step up and do that. Now, he got to see the walls of Jericho fall down, but did he get to see the people of Israel take all of the promised land? He did not. Did he get to see the fulfillment of the promised land, which is the person of Jesus Christ? He did not. Did he get to see? No, he didn't get to see any of that. He saw some things and put his faith into God for the rest of it. All these, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, if you don't know who some of those are, because some of those don't get, they don't get a Veggie Tales. Um, we will, uh, we're going to go through a study of the book of Judges when I get back, Lord willing. Um, and you'll see why I don't like that these guys are listed. Um, David, Samuel, and the prophets, those who faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, <coughs> became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. These are amazing stories of what people experienced because they were willing to trust. Now again, Samson and Jephthah in particular strike me as egocentric, childish, impulsive, narcissistic. And at first, bland, at first blush, I think like, God, why are they there? I hate that they're in this list. There's just almost nothing positive about them. And then I think about myself. And I think actually... I'm glad they're listed. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. (coughs) They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. What a great line. You want that on your tombstone? That is awesome. Wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and the caves of earth. Severe poverty and persecution. 
At this point, the writer of Hebrews is not only talking about the heroes of the past, but probably some of his close friends who had been captured by the Romans and persecuted, killed by them. Sawn in half is a reference to one of the ways the Romans like to kill people, to close them up in a log and then saw the log in half with them still inside of it. These were awful, evil tortures that these people were put through, and they would not even accept a quick death. They wouldn't recant of their faith just to be killed quickly. They insisted on being tortured to death. They too were taking on the reproach of Jesus Christ. This still goes on today, if you don't know. You can do a little research. Look up the voice of the martyrs. Christians every day, many hundreds, some say thousands, are dying every day for the cause of Christ, persecuted every day for the cause of Christ around the world, imprisoned, mistreated, in absolute poverty, um, kept away from even the basic necessities of life by those who persecute them. Um, this still goes on today, and the world is not worthy of them. You know why they get persecuted like that? Because they go and they risk, and sometimes they pay the price for it. They go to a part of the world and they seek to be missionaries or they seek to love people who are not worthy of that love. The world is not worthy of the kind of love that Christians pour out on this world every day. Again, you go on a short-term mission trip or a long one or, or, or the rest of your life and you get to see. You go anywhere in the world. I challenge you to go anywhere in the world and find the darkest, most hurting, most, most disconnected or the most aggressively violent people and you will find Christians seeking to minister to them. There is no one so evil that there aren't people in the name of Jesus Christ reaching out to them. There's no one so poor who can offer nothing in return that there aren't Christians who are reaching out to them right now around the world. And many Christians are dying for it, for doing it. The world is not worthy. It cannot earn that. They're not doing it for the world. That's one of my favorite old uh, Mother Teresa stories of her sitting on the side of a road pulling maggots out of the wound of a, chi- of a street child with her bare hand and having a reporter behind her say, you could not pay me enough to do that. And allegedly her saying, yeah, me either. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Um, (laughs) We are part of the fulfillment. Even though we don't get to see the fullness of it yet either, we haven't yet seen the glorious city that awaits us. We can teach about it and talk about it. It's talked about in the book of Revelation, this this wondrous city that the Bedouins wandered around in the desert, and they were hoping thousands of years ago for the day when God would bring that here. We haven't seen the fullness of it, but we've seen more than they, and yet somehow we live less devotedly for this. We've gotten to see the Messiah and learn about him and experience him. The writer has slapped away all of our excuses, one witness after another. Whatever your, whatever your personal favorite excuse for why you would not believe, God has, has called a witness to the stand who slaps that down. If none of them work, then, then chapter 12 begins by telling us who the final witness would be if you didn't know. Laura Sievert, who's an attorney, came up afterwards and said in, in the... In the um, uh, in the law world, this is called a positive defense. I think I'm saying that right. I don't know if she's still learning the positive defense, meaning that you come in and you say, yeah, everything you say is true. You're an awful person. Mm-hmm. You're a sinner. I mean, that's, I, I imagine me sending her on the stage and, him, and, and, the, and the, the prosecutor saying, tell us, tell, us about your, tell us about your righteousness. What did you earn? And 
Does this guy have no any idea what he's talking about? No, sir. He was pretty much clueless all the way. Did, 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 he, did he sin? Was he making mistakes constantly, constantly, constantly? Everything that the guy did was tainted by insecurity or, or mixed motives or, or, or fear or whatever else it was. Everything that he did. And so really, he doesn't get full credit for anything at all. And so, well, then what, is your, what possible claim would you have? And my claim is I, I have no claim. I have no righteousness to lay before the judge to say, hey, here's the good things I did because the truth is even they were probably, you know, mixed motives, let's be honest. The only claim I have is that the last witness who's called in every one of these, I know him and he knows me. And so I place myself on the mercy of the court in the name of Jesus Christ that though I am guilty of all these things, he has already paid this price. That's, that's our defense in the courtroom drama. Chapter 12. And uh, Wayne will next week um, go in more detail on this, Lord willing. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's why it's a courtroom drama. These are the witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of that faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. The ultimate witness, the one who knew exactly what he was getting into, who bore the sin and the shame and the wrath of every sin we've ever committed. And not just us, but every sin that has ever been committed by the race of mankind, he bore it. The pain of the race of mankind, he carried. Not just the child who was abused and their broken heart, but the broken heart of the abuser, he carried all of that. The doubt and fear and pain of a child with bone cancer and their anger and hurt and frustration and falling short of their parents and of everyone else involved, he carried that. All of it. No one competes with him when it comes to suffering. No one. Not even close. And in the midst of that, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. He endured so that we could believe among many things, out of obedience to his Father. So, <clears throat> as, um, as I'm going to head out on this sabbatical in a few minutes, uh, technically, I mean, I'm not going anywhere, but technically, um, uh, one, I would, I would ask that you would pray for me, but two, I want to leave you with a challenge. Here's the challenge. Um, on September 13th, we'll meet back up on that evening, on that Wednesday night, for our first Wednesday night gathering. And I wanted to, we're, we're starting to do these the first Wednesday nights and then the last one of, of one of the months, uh, one of the semesters. We meet and we all gather together um, and we uh, experience some cool stuff together and we learn and we discuss. But um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge everyone, every member of the church to come back, having memorized Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. That you would memorize Philippians 2, verses 1 through 16, and as you're reading through it and memorizing it and reading it and reading it and reading it, if you're that type of memorizer, that you would note people among our body, people in our church, who you would say exemplify the traits that Paul references in Philippians chapter 2. That you would say, you know what, I read that and that reminds me of this person, or I read this and it reminds me of this person. So, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 16. And... and Yes, I will. We, we will have some little reward for those who pull that off. But I'm not going to tell you what it is, so you have to you know, go in faith. Um, you have to trust. Hope that it will be there, things you can't see. So I want to pray for us that we can live this out in faith, that we can live it out as God called us 
to do so. So please pray with me. Father, thank you for this great cloud of witnesses. Father, they, they challenge us. Um, Father, they um, encourage us. And really, they slap away our excuses. They had so much less to work with so much of the time and yet had so much faith. Father, I pray that you, your son, the author and per- perfecter of our faith, the one who starts and finishes it, that you will guide us through your spirit, through your son, to live out that life of faith. That we would risk in the name of your son, that we would live extraordinary lives of faith, worthy of mention. God, I pray that we would live that way because we trust. We trust you, even when it makes, seems to make little sense to trust you. God, I do pray for the soul of, of so many who are so angry at you, like Stephen Fry. I, I pray you would capture him and save him from the empty way of life that he has been handed. Lord, I, I pray you can save any of us, even guys like Samson. So I pray that you would save us fully, completely, as only you can. We thank you for this gospel as presented through the writer of Hebrews. Pray you would guide us as we seek to follow you in your son's name. Amen.